to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I want to start by talking about a game. So you might have heard of the huge success of the new mobile phone game, Pokemon Go. So what happens is players wander around in the real world, searching for these Pokemon creatures that appear on their phone. And it looks like they're actually there in the real world. And this game was launched only two weeks ago, and yet within 24 hours, it had rocketed to the top of Apple's and Google's app stores. And last week, it became the most active mobile game ever in the USA, even beating Candy Crush. And I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. So last weekend, I asked my technology mentor, who happens to be my partner, Nikki's 15-year-old son, Josh, to show me. And he took me around, we went around to a park, we took the dog for a walk, and what I saw with Pokemon Go just convinced me that Pokemon Go and the whole phenomenon will indirectly influence us all in business, but not for the reason that you might think. Yes, it's certainly been a huge marketing success for its developers, Niantic and Nintendo, which are the companies behind it, and any business owner would be envious of its success with things like marketing, mobile technology, uh, free-to-play, but things that you can buy within the app and so on. But I think its real impact will be because a whole bunch of people have now experienced augmented reality. See, what happens is when you find a Pokemon character in the game, it appears on your phone as a cartoon-like character projected onto the real world. In other words, it blends the virtual world with the physical world, and that's augmented reality, and it's going to be big. Now, this is not quite the same as virtual reality, but it's similar. So virtual reality, or VR, is where you enter an imaginary world and move around in it. With augmented reality, which is AR, you bring parts of the imaginary world or the digital world into the real world. Both VR and AR are growing really fast. But let's just look at AR, which is augmented reality, here. And as a leader, this is something that you really need to know about because augmented reality is going to affect every business and every industry. It's not just for cute cartoon-based mobile apps. It's going to affect every business, including yours. So think of it like this. Imagine anybody in your business, that's you, your staff, your suppliers, your customers, and, and so on, having instant access to Google in front of their eyes. So instead of having to pull out their phone to do a Google search or to look up every, anything else on the internet, they have glasses or contact lenses that when you're looking around, it, they recognize the environment, they do that Google search to find out information about the environment, and then present that information in front of their eyes. So let me give you a couple of examples. Suppose you're a real estate agent and you're showing a potential buyer around a property that you have for sale. Even before they arrive, as they drive through the suburb, they learn about the local area, what other properties around them are worth, uh, the crime rate, access to public transport and other amenities, the percentage of homeowners in the suburb, and so on. When they arrive at the property, they get out of the car, look at the house, and they can instantly pull up information about it, how long it's been on the market, um, whether the asking price has changed, whether it's been taken off the market, uh, full history of past sales, and so on. And so they walk in and they meet you armed with that information. And when you walk up to them and shake their hand, they can get information about you as well. How many sales you've made recently, uh, what areas you work in, what other clients have said about you as an agent, and so on. And when they walk inside and they look around, they can instantly get information about each room, the exact dimensions, temperature and lighting, and other information. They can even project their furniture into the room to have a look at how it would appear when they move in. 
So that's augmented reality as a real estate agent. As another example, suppose you're a professional speaker, as I am, or a trainer, and you're making a presentation. So when you show or say something that's authoritative, for example, you could uh, quote a, a statistic or a quotation, the audience instantly assesses it. How accurate is it? How current is it? What have other people said about it? What are other people saying about it right now? And so on. If you're running a workshop and your attendees are doing something, some sort of process, they can see instructions guiding them step by step through the process. And those instructions are coming right in front of their eyes. They don't have to look away and look at a video on their phone or read some handout. And when they're using their skills back in their workplace, they see the instructions again, and those are contextual. They get the right set of instructions depending on what they're doing. And when they look back at their notes later, they can even replay what you were saying at that point in the workshop. And this sounds like science fiction, but it isn't. Much of the information that people are getting in these examples is already available on your phone. And right now, in 2016, we don't yet have the magic contact lenses, so we've got to type and touch or talk to Siri to feed in the questions and then look at the phone to see the answers. And that's an inconvenient, but it's still something that people do. And it won't be long before we do have those magic contact lenses. So be prepared. Now it's time for a conversation with my guest. And my guest in this episode is a regular guest, my friend and colleague, Dr. Chris Putney. And I've just been talking about how augmented reality will change every workplace and every business. So let's take a broader look at the workplace of the future. Most workplaces still carry over baggage from 200 years ago when the office was invented. Because most modern workplaces, they still are offices. They're obviously a lot different than they were 200 years ago, but the office was still the default work environment of the past, and it is still the default work environment now, but it isn't necessarily the best for the future. So let's take a glimpse into the workplace of the future. Let's look at the workplace of the future. For the last 200 years or so, we've taken it for granted that the office with the permanent staff has been the work environment, which has been the, the default work environment, at least for knowledge workers. But before that, so more than 200 years ago, when before, long before we were born, Chris, that wasn't the case. The office wasn't the place where you go to work. And it doesn't have to be that way in the future either. And it's certainly not necessarily the best workplace for the future, given some of the other options that are available to us. So today we're going to look at the workplace of the future. And when we do that, we can do it in one of two ways. We can either be evolutionary or revolutionary. So evolution says, okay, we've got the office environment now. So it's got some disadvantages. How do we reduce those disadvantages? And also, how do we take advantage of some of the technology and some of the other facilities available to make non-office environments as good as the office? So we're trying to say the office is best practice. How do we make it, A, make it better, and also B, uh, make other things just as good? But the revolutionary approach is to say, well, forget about the office, but let's look at what's the best workspace for tomorrow's work. That's actually saying ignore the office and start again. And many approaches to the workplace of the future have been that former approach, which is evolutionary. So people are looking at things like online meetings and saying, how do we make them as good as in-person meetings? Uh, we look at commute times and say, how do we make commute times shorter or find ways for people to work while they're commuting 
for example, uh, when I was in Brisbane recently, the trains there have Wi-Fi on board, which is great. And um, in the future, we're going to have driverless cars so people can work while they're driving to work because the car is going to do their driving for them. Um, we look at how do we, uh, if we have telecommuters, how do we incorporate them into our office culture? We look at how do we outsource certain jobs to freelancers and make that work as if they were working with us in the same office. We look at when you're hiring staff, how do we get them on board faster? When you're bringing contractors on board, how do you integrate them better? And all of those things are great, but they're evolutionary. They're looking at, here's what we've got. How do we find other ways to to make that better and then um, make other options as good as that? I reckon we should look at a revolutionary approach. So we start off by saying we're not starting from that idea of um, in-office, permanent staff as the default. So what if offices didn't exist or what if they were illegal? So Mm -hmm. there weren't weren't an option at all. So let's look at what sort of workplace that would look like. So we're going to do a little bit of a thought experiment today and look at the workplace of the future if offices didn't exist. And even though it's hypothetical, I reckon a lot of the things that we're going to cover are ideas that might spark some inspiration for you if you're working in a traditional office or you're managing a traditional office and you may be able to incorporate some of these into your workplace. So even though we're saying this is revolutionary, I'm sure there are some ideas that you get that you can add uh, incrementally into your office environment. Okay, so let's get started by asking about this hypothetical workplace where the work is actually going to, be, going to happen. And the answer is that it can happen everywhere and anywhere. So in this hypothetical scenario... The technological infrastructure for doing work is going to be ubiquitous, which allows us to work pretty much anywhere that we like. So, for instance, we can work from home. We're used to talking about that as out-of-office workers. And when you're working from home, you want to set up some clear boundaries between your work life and home life and so that you integrate them in a way that suits your lifestyle. But also, you're going to be able to work when you're out and about or when you're on the move. So, Gihan, you talked about uh, the potential for driverless vehicles and mass transit that's got Wi-Fi. So that means that these venues are places where you can actually get work done. Or if you're out at a cafe or even when you're on holiday or at a retreat, somewhere like that, all of these places are going to be places where you can choose to do work. So you can do work anywhere. It's up to you to decide whether you should be doing work and how to do that in a way that's productive and efficient. Somewhere else is places like co-working spaces. So these are like offices but you and you go there to work alongside other people who are also doing work but they're not your colleagues. You'll be working in a distributed team and you'll be working alongside other people who are doing likewise. You can, in, you can choose and you may want to go to a co-working space so you can interact with these other workers but they're not, not necessarily people that you're working with. And you can be going there on a regular basis, let's say, in which case you might be paying an annual membership fee to get access to the co-working space, and there might be a chain of them that you get to use. Or you might go on there on a casual basis and and use hot desks and and paper use. And I think one of the things that happens is when you say, okay, offices don't exist or they're they're illegal, then people will come up with other innovative ways that people can work. And you're starting from scratch. So you get things like, uh, I came across this service called Hoffice, which is, I think it's a Swedish service, but it's it's like Airbnb, but for office space. So if you've got a, a lounge room that you're not using during the day, you can rent it out. 
out and people come in and work in that lounge room or the, the like a uh, study area. And so there are new ideas where people find ways to create office space where none existed or where there's spare capacity to be used. Um, and you know, you may say that you reinvent the idea of the office, but instead of it being the, the place that you go to by default, it may be a place that you go to as a reward. So I can imagine that it's that, that sort of luxury destination that you can, that you can use when you really, really want to get together in person, because most of the time you won't be working together with other people in your team. Um, you will, but not in person, rather than say the way it works now is when you want to get out of the office and do some blue sky thinking, you go off to some fancy retreat. It may be that that's the way it works as well. But instead of you going away from an office, you go away from your regular working space. And, and the other things that will crop up, there'll be things like work hubs and work campuses, which are like those co-working spaces you mentioned earlier, Chris, but they're on the scale of uh, corporate works, workplaces rather than just a small place or a cafe where people get together around a table. And they're the sort of places that will provide those sort of premium and luxury workspaces for, for people to work and to, uh, to collaborate. And the, the big distinction is that it's a place that you choose to go to because you can see some advantages of going there rather than the place that you go to by default because that's the way it's always been done. Excellent. Okay, so you talked about where work happens. Let's look at how work gets done. So if you look at how's work going to get done, well, the, the big change is that distributed work is going to become the norm not the exception. And what we mean by distributed work is that team members aren't physically in the same space. So that happens now when you've got telecommuters and freelancers and sometimes offsite contractors, but still, it's still very much the, the minority rather than the majority, even though that's changing. But if you think about a world where that becomes a norm, then certain things have to happen. For example, you have to have the right sort of public infrastructure to make that to make that work. And one of the biggest things is that you've just got to have high-speed internet access everywhere. And it's got to be taken for granted in the same way as, at the moment, our in-office environments. We take for granted that we're going to have electricity, water. We're going to have good road systems so that people can get to offices. Well, all of those things that we now take for granted um, – Things like high-speed internet access have to become um, as commonplace and as expected uh, so that they become a utility rather than a luxury or a, a privilege. And the other thing that happens, once that happens, is that everything becomes cloud-based and digital. So when you've got access to the internet all the time, then there's no reason for you to have um, files on local servers. There's no need for you to have paper files around. And everything has to become cloud-based and digital. And anything that isn't is seen as an extravagance. It's almost like an extra expense. Like you almost have to justify why have I got a printout of this uh, when it should be cloud-based and it should be online. And so, Gihan, so with that, that ubiquitous internet service and things being based in the cloud, all of that leads to the ability to collaborate online. And it's just something that workers will take for granted and will do by default. That will be the way that they work. They will use the cloud for everything. The resources that they need, the tools that they use will all be cloud-based because they've got this ubiquitous internet infrastructure that makes it seamless and easy to work in that way. And that will be the standard. That will be how we work. Um, when it comes to face-to-face -face meetings, these will be thought of as slow and inefficient and difficult and expensive and will only do them really as a last resort or perhaps as the kind of reward that you spoke about previously where it's a 
an infrequent thing that you do perhaps as part of an activity where you meet face to face and perhaps you do a bit of socialising because um, you know it's it's nice actually to to meet face to face with your colleagues on occasion. I find it quite rewarding when I occasionally go to the UK and meet with my my colleagues. It's expensive, slow, and inefficient, but there is a reward in in that process as well. And that kind of immediate collaboration where all of the workers in the team are, are together concurrently, it's going to be high fidelity. So it'll be real time. There'll be no dropouts. There'll be no uh, breakup of, of signal, something we struggle with occasionally when recording this podcast. Um, so it's going to be high fidelity. It might even allow for things like um, telepresence where you, um, you, know, you have a 3D holographic avatars, or you might even be able to physically interact in so much as um, you, you, you have teleoperations. In Perth, we have these teleoperations centres that are being set up, and high-speed, ubiquitous internet will allow us to actually um, work on things where some physical interaction needs to take place. And I think it's really interesting, Chris, there's a company that I do a lot of work for, Citrix, and they have a lot of collaboration technology, and they actually, they're very careful about using that phrase face-to-face, because in common usage, it is... Uh, it's taken to mean that you're there in person, but they, they actually use the term in person rather than face-to-face because they say, well, face-to-face technology can allow you to do face-to-face even if you're not there in person, so physically in the same space. So oh, they're, they're kind of on this path to to change that meaning of face-to-face, which is currently seen as physical in person, to mm-hmm. meaning you can be just as good face-to-face, like you can see my face, I can see yours, uh, but we're not in the same place, and but we can be just as if effective um, without having to be there physically in person. Okay, we should use belly to belly then. Belly to belly, or in protein form, as I've heard some people say. (laughs) Much better. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about when would work happen. And the answer there is whenever it suits the individual worker, so they can choose uh, the time and place when they do their work, but the overriding goal is that they deliver, that they get results done and they deliver on whatever goals they've agreed to with their client or the organisation that they're working for. So here, the worker or the team that the, that the worker's in, they take responsibility for delivering whatever deliverables their project is about. It's not about having a manager looking over your shoulder, making sure that you've got your nose to the grindstone and that you're present at your work desk. It's about the team having agreed to particular goals, that they're going to deliver something at a particular time for a particular cost. And what managers and leaders do is that they track that along with the team and that they reward when the results are delivered. It's not about just paying people for turning up and the problem of presenteeism. And I think this is the biggest challenge and probably the biggest obstacle to be overcome to move to this kind of workplace in the future. It's not about the technology. It's not about the infrastructure. It's about leaders and managers and the way that they look at how they look after their teams and about how team members work within that, of course. It's that whole idea that you can't you can't lead and manage by observing what people do and hovering around them all the time. It's a completely different management style. You've got to be okay with somebody saying, okay, well, you give me a week to do this task. I've done it in the first half day, so I'm going to goof off for the rest of the week. And as a leader, you've got to be okay with that and go, okay, well, that's fine. You've achieved what I asked you to achieve. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to give you 10 other things to do. It means that you did that. So you get to choose how um, how you do your work and when it when you do your work. Yeah. And I think that that whole concept of diversity also 
expands Chris so we think about having a diverse workplace as talking about diversity of sex of uh, ethnic backgrounds of religion uh, of sexual orientation and we ought, we now are taking that for granted that we accept that sort of diversity but we don't really think of diversity at this stage in terms of work patterns and the workplace of the future will have to come to embrace that so there's some people who are early birds some people who are night owls some people want to work um, five days a week some people want to work seven days a week some people want to work two days a week and those days may vary uh, people work in different countries time zones um, are rewarded even monetary rewards happen in different currencies um, and so all of those things become part of diversity even people's motivation so the motivation of a, um, a graduate who's just moving up what they see as their career path. There might be a retiree who's doing a few, few hours a week of work as a volunteer. There are parents who are returning from paternity and maternity leave. Those three people might be doing uh, the exact same task, but they've got very different motivations around it. And as leaders and managers, uh, we've got to be able to, to accept that and not just accept it, but embrace it and allow for it and help people work uh, when they want to work uh, in, a, in a way that aligns with our goals and our organization's goals, but also in a way that aligns with their personal goals as well. Yeah. Okay. So that, that leads on really well to who actually does the work. So we talked about um, how the work gets done and when the work gets done, but who does the work? And the answer is the best people for the job. Now, you might go, well, duh, of course we want the best people for the job, but that's not the way it works in the traditional office environment where you have a permanent staff or the majority of staff are permanent and maybe you bring in freelancers and contractors. So the idea is now you've got a much more fluid work team. So there's no expectation that team members stay together from one project to the next. Now what will happen is, interestingly, the best teams do often stay together, but that's because they really work well together, not just because they are employed by the same organization and happen to live in the same town and work in the same office. And it also means that people become much more entrepreneurial. So as an individual, rather than looking at your company or your your manager to look after your career growth, you take responsibility for that yourself. Now, that is happening. And millennials, the Gen Ys, are very much uh, looking after their own career path as well. But now this becomes a necessity, not just a nice option. And only the motivated people are going to do that. So the individ individuals become more entrepreneurial and they choose which projects they work on, not which company they work for. And the kinds of uh, camaraderie and the friendship that uh, develops will work fairly differently. So when you're a member of a distributed team, um, you will develop a personal relationship. You'll be doing things together, collaborating each day probably, um, um, and you'll develop a relationship because you work together, not because you happen to um, socialize when you're at work or socialize after work and that your kids, are, you know, you, you work in the same area so you bump into each other at the shops or your kids go to the same school. Um, rather, your relationships will develop around the work that, the, that you do and the team that you're in. Um, so it'll be somewhat different to, from the kinds of relationships that develop between co-workers within a traditional office scenario. Yeah, it really changes the whole concept of office culture, doesn't it, or workplace culture? Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly does. And uh, you and I probably experienced that already as a consequence of working with people um, remotely in, in a large part. Yep, absolutely. So let's move on then, Gihan, to why we do work. And the answer here is because we want to, not because we have to. And I'm not saying that um, 
you can take it or leave it in so much as whether you work or not, but it's more about the choices that you make around the kinds of work that you do. I mean, we're going to have to earn money. That's going to be a motivator, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So you probably will have to work, but you'll have greater flexibility, freedom, and choice in the type of work that you do. So there'll be a broad range of jobs that you can choose from, um, and and then the, the, the range is broadened because you're not limited by the fact that you can only choose a job that happens to be within commuting distance from your home. Uh, you can choose to work for clients that are based anywhere in the world, regardless of their time zone or their location. And um, they'll be a- aligned with the goals that you have. You'll have a broad range of choices, so you can choose jobs that uh, fit your skill set, that fit the kinds of the way that you want to do work. Conversely, organizations are going to have a broader range of workers to choose from. So they can choose those people who've got the experience and skills that they need to uh, do the particular project that they're, that they're putting out there. And they'll also be able to look at the track record that the individuals or maybe the teams, we spoke about earlier, that teams are going to be fluid, but successful teams are probably going to stick together and bid for work um, on an ongoing basis. Organizations will be able to choose those teams and they'll have a broad range to choose from. Yeah, and we're seeing a little bit of this, possibly not in the team level, Chris, but certainly at the individual level with the talent markets that mm. uh, that we've used, both you and I have used, where you, you go online and you, you find workers for particular jobs. They may be anywhere around the world and there are they have a profile, they have rating from past customers they worked with. They get to rate past customers that they worked with as well. And so you can choose. You choose from this broad talent pool, which can be anywhere around the world, different currencies, different time zones, different countries, different motivations and yet work happens very effectively. Yeah, and it works for both sides of the equation, doesn't it? For those people who are bidding for work and those who are defining projects. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's not just a case of um, the, the person who bids the lowest will get the job because uh, employers want the, uh, to pay the, the least amount of money. It's not that at all. That reputation capital also counts for a lot when choosing somebody to work with and choosing somebody to work for as well because it works the other way around as well. Indeed, yeah. Mm. And, uh, you know, money is still important and will still be a motivator for lots and lots of people um, because we still need to make a living. But, as you said, Chris, other factors come into play as well. Uh, you look at doing work that's fulfilling for you, that helps you achieve your personal goals, that's aligned with your health and wellness. So those sort of factors, which generally have been secondary to work, um, will become much more important in the workplace of the future. And the workers themselves will be looking at developing their own skills, their experience, and achieving in their chosen field of expertise. Now, you'd like to think that workplaces already are looking out for their workers and their, their team members and employees in that respect, but that doesn't happen all the time. In the best workplaces, it does happen, in the most enlightened workplaces, but now this is going to become the norm rather than the, ex- uh, rather than the exception. And I think one of the really interesting consequences is this concept of retirement. So the idea that you work work and work and work, and then when you get to a certain age, you'll retire. I reckon that concept is going to change. Maybe it'll disappear altogether because people will always be making decisions about blending work and personal life. And I remember reading, Chris, that the the whole idea of the retirement age as being set at 65 initially was because that was the life expectancy at the time. So you were expected to work until pretty much you die, um, and you have to make your own decisions about how you fit in personal life and uh, other things around your work uh, while you're working. And now that 
that has changed. Life expectancy has gone up, retirement ages have come down, and it's not necessarily a good thing. And I reckon when you have people who are making their own choices about blending work and the rest of their life, it actually might make a, um, a much healthier work, a workplace and a much healthier workforce as well. And um, I think that whole idea of having an arbitrary retirement age, I think, is dumb. It's a stupid idea in the age of the knowledge worker. Uh, my dad, who's in his late 70s, was just talking to me uh, in the last couple of weeks about offering his services online using one of these talent markets. Right. And, uh, you know, this is something that would not have been open to him uh, five or ten years ago, and yet he's thinking of doing that. Yeah, and there's a lot of evidence, Pete, that people who continue to work after after retirement, so to speak, um, are happier and healthier than people who just chuck it in at 65 and um, and do nothing. That, that, that idleness... Um, becomes a burden for them, both in terms of their health and well-being. Yep, exactly. And I think that idea that you need to retire because you're no longer physically able to work, uh, that is an old-fashioned idea and no longer needs to be the case in the, in the era of the knowledge worker. Yeah. Okay, so there you have it. Let's wrap things up. And I think one of the central ideas in this um, hypothetical workplace of the future is the idea of freedom. So... Workers and also employers have a great deal of freedom around those five things that we've talked about, spoken about, the, the who, the why, the when, the how, and the where we do work. All of those have a great deal of flexibility built into them, and workers can choose all of those according to uh, their own set of goals, and, and um, I think that's a, an ideal place to be. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And as, as I said at the start, even though that we made this a hypothetical conversation, and you might be thinking, well, that's all very well, but we're nowhere near that at the moment. I think it's worthwhile listening to this again and making notes of some things that perhaps you could incorporate into your workplace, um, either, as, either as an individual or as a leader or manager, to bring into, bring into place some of these ideas from the workplace of the future. Because uh, even though we've said this is revolutionary, there may be some evolutionary things that you can do to incrementally improve your workplace to bring some of these in, and partly to prepare yourself for the future, but partly because in general, it's going to be a better workplace anyway. I know we covered a lot in that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Most of all, I hope you took the opportunity to imagine a new kind of workplace for yourself, your team, and for your organization. Before we finish, I want to tell you about my Fast Track Your Book Masterclasses, which are coming up in Sydney and Melbourne. Because as a leader, one of the best ways to position yourself as a trusted authority is to publish a book about your expertise. Being an author gives you instant credibility and it positions you as an authority. It's no coincidence that the word authority starts with author because your customers and clients and your employees like to know that they're working with experts and your book demonstrates your expertise. It positions you first as an expert and then as an authority. Now you might already know this, but you don't know how to write a book. You've got great ideas, you know how valuable a book can be, you know you've got a book in you, but you just don't know how to do it. And that's why I'm running this one-day masterclass. It's called Fast Track Your Book, and this, in this one-day program, you learn the process of writing a book, structure and layout and cover design and ISBN and barcodes and illustrations. I'll give you access to all the supplies that I use myself, so you'll walk out with a detailed outline of your book, the knowledge of how to fill in all the content, and a realistic action plan for getting it done. So I'm running it in both Sydney and in Melbourne. In Sydney, it's on Monday the 19th of September, and in Melbourne, it's at the end of that same week, Friday the 23rd of September. If you'd like to find out more, 
go to fasttrackyourbook.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life that will help you become fit for the future. And if you did get some value from it, I'd really appreciate it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating on iTunes because that helps promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this at your next conference, then check out my speaking at gihanspeaks.com, G-I-H-A-N. S-P-E-A-K-S dot com. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, uh, go to gihanperera.com, G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. And there you can find my blog, my newsletter, podcast, videos, and my webinar series. They're all free, and they're all designed to help you become fit for the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.